0: Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. Here on this podcast, we talk about the building blocks and the micro habits that help us create real and lasting influence. What do I mean by that? Well, we're talking about the kind of influence that helps you achieve your goals and whatever it is in life that you want to accomplish. But perhaps most importantly, it's the type of influence that helps you create real impact and that enables you to truly thrive. Hey friend, welcome to episode 279. Do you ever feel like the world has turned into this ill-mannered, totally uncivilized place where civility and politeness often feel like things of the past? Well, I recently read Alexandra Hudson's new book, which is called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. I'm not sure what I was expecting to learn from Lexi's book, but frankly, I was completely blown away by the thoughtful, deep dive that she takes into this topic of civility. And I was really excited to have Alexandra, who also goes by Lexi, join us on the podcast to share her perspective and why she wrote this book. Now, in addition to being an author and a thought leader, Lexi is also the founder of something called the Civic Renaissance, which is a publication and community that's dedicated, in Lexi's words, to beauty, goodness, and truth. A lot to love about that, right? I have included a link to Lexi's complete bio um, in the show notes for this episode. Again, it's episode 279. And friend, if you are looking for a really relevant and very thought-provoking read for either yourself or your book club. I really think this one is perfect. It hits at just the right moment as we head into this year's election cycle, and it addresses so many of the feelings and thoughts and emotions that frankly can be really difficult to work through, especially when it feels like the stakes are so high. This is not a book on politics, but rather a book on how our personal identities in many ways have become captive to our politics, which is really fascinating. It's also about the responsibility that each of us can take to begin to shift this problem, including the power or the impact of other-orientedness and where that comes into conflict with so much focus on self-care. Talk about the power of influence. There are just so many themes that that really resonated with me, and I hope the same will be true for you. This book took Lexi about 10 years off and on to write, and it shows. It is incredibly well-researched, and it dives deep into the foundations of both civility and politeness And I think you will really appreciate it. As always, friend, I love to hear from you. So I want to know what you thought about this conversation once you've had a chance to listen. You can message me on LinkedIn or Instagram. You will find me at Laura Cox Kaplan. So be sure to reach out with your thoughts. For now, though, friend, here is episode 279 with Alexandra Hudson. Her friends call her Lexi. And that's what I do in this conversation today. Lexi, welcome to She Said, She Said. I am so thrilled to have you here. Laura,
1: such a pleasure. Really grateful to to you for having me on.
0: Well, I'm happy to have you. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I really, really love your book. It is a very thoughtful and even more importantly, thought-provoking work on this concept of civility. I want to start our conversation by having you talk about the confusion and the difference between civility and politeness, which we tend to conflate, but they are very different things. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I love um,
1: I love etymology. I love the story behind our language. But it's really interesting. You're right. People do often conflate these two ideas: civility and politeness. Whether they want more of it in our public life or less of it, whether they claim you know manners, etiquette, civility are the tools of you know the patriarchy and people in positions of power to keep the powerless powerless. They mm. uh, both these modes insufficiently appreciate that that there is this important distinction. Uh, we've been doing uh, conflating these ideas for a very long time. Uh, Samuel Johnson in the first English dictionary in 1755 defined civility in terms of politeness, politeness in terms of civility. We've been doing it ever since. So, you know, no one's really at fault here, but my book, I aim to bring more clarity to our language. That's the beauty of English is that it's descriptive. That's how Johnson approached the English language. It was like how people were using words and it's changeable um, in contrast to uh, a language like French, the Académie Francaise, this custodian of the French language. And and doesn't matter how French people use French, the Académie Française, and it, it's always correct, right? But that's the beauty of English. It's organic. And, and I think we need this distinction for our moment now. So I argue that pol- uh, politeness is manners. It's etiquette. It's technique. It's external. Whereas civility is internal. It's not just manners. It's not the outside stuff. It's a disposition of the heart. It's an orientation towards others, a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are worthy of a bare minimum of respect by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. And that sometimes crucially, actually loving, actually respecting someone requires being impolite, telling hard truths, engaging in robust Debate, and in our world today, we're kind of afraid of offending others. We're afraid to to risk putting ourselves. We're we're afraid of um, you know stepping on people's toes. But we, we we forget that that that. Risking offending someone, telling tell, risking telling someone a hard truth, is actually a way to love and respect others, and, and it's certainly what we need. It's, it, that that kind of debate is the lifeblood of a democracy, of American democracy. So yeah. I argue throughout the book that we need more civility, less politeness, actually, you know, actually respecting, actually loving others, and less just less less just pretending to do so through the gestures and the, and the norms and the manners and the techniques.
0: Yeah. I love that and I know that message is going to resonate so deeply with so many people that are listening at the same time though practically speaking and you sort of alluded to this in your answer this is a really difficult time mm-hmm. to express a point of view that mm-hmm. may not be accepted by lots of people um you know whether it's a political point of view or a point of view about something else and this fear of being canceled, mm-hmm. um, even kids in school are afraid to express a you know quote unquote political point of view that might not align with that of the other students or even the professor or the mm-hmm. faculty member. Mm-hmm. And this is not just in college; it is true in college, but it's not just in college. It's also mm-hmm. kids in high school and middle school. So, talk about how do we how do we square this circle with this real challenge. That we are experiencing in our society, in our culture of people afraid to speak up, Mm -hmm. impact that that has on this idea of civility. Help me break all this down.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a great insight, and I think you're right. Many people are afraid. They're afraid of being canceled, afraid of being silenced, called a you know racist, bigot, white supremacist. All these horrible uh, words that are losing their power because they're just tossed around. They're 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 used willy nilly like all the mm-hmm. time. And um, but what's interesting about that as people are simultaneously afraid um, and and kind of. G- going on the extreme of being nice and polite and staying silent, right? Um, They're simultaneously supporting Strong men, like you know, the, the kind of Donald Trump effect, that are that are unafraid, right, unapologetically mm. puncturing through the culture of silence and hypocrisy and and the tone policing, the political correctness, uh, and th- and that's whole, all of that's Donald Trump's appeal. That's his promise, right? He's your bully. He's he's going to stand up for you because you have been silenced, you've been marginalized. Uh, and I think so. I learned this firsthand when I was in government. I was uh, with Secretary DeVos at the United States Department mm. of Education, and I saw these two extremes both within my uh, political team and, and and in the civil service but you know I had been raised by my mother this etiquette expert Judy the manners lady who who trained me to be courteous and other oriented and, and and polite to everyone I met and then when I got to government my my faith in my ability to overcome differences and flourish across disagreement was refuted. I was in this environment for a year of my life of anti-human flourishing. It was just total like survivalism. And I I, I did see these two extremes. On one hand, there was the bullies, like the, the hostile contingent with sharp elbows. And you knew you knew what they wanted. You knew they were not afraid to step on you or anyone else to get what they wanted. And I said, okay, like I know where they stand. And I know to stay away from them, stay out of their way. And on the other hand, there were people who were polished and poised and they were nice But these are the people who would smile at me one moment and then stab me and others in the back the next. And I realized these were actually the more savvy politicos. (laughs) And these are the (laughs) ones that scared me. These are the ones that I was like, oh, my word, this is like subterfuge. This is guerrilla warfare. I don't know when I'm being like, you know, when someone's actually my friend and when they're just using me, you you know, to to, to get ahead. One time a colleague, uh, you know, approached me and said, you know, I looked radiant that day, and I was brilliant, by the way. And could I please just help him on this one tiny little project? And I was happy to help. Uh, he didn't. He I didn't realize that he expected me to do the entire project for him. And then he passed my work off as his own and took all the meetings and glory associated with with doing the work that he was not prepared for. And that really. And then he cast me aside you know, gone were the pleasantries, gone were the the flattery, was the flattery. And I felt really used. And I was like, that seems so short-sighted. It's like, we work together. You know, I'm not going to be inclined to help you next time you need help. And like, you know, we all need help (laughs) from some time or or another. And so what I realized in this experience, these two extremes, the extremely belligerence and hostility and the extreme politeness, those Mm -hmm. I experienced at a macrocosm, but they kind of also embody the two extremes in our world and our public discourse today. And that people support, Court, people are dissatisfied with the tone policing, with the focus on on etiquette and propriety, using and saying the right words, the right pronouns, all the right things. And what do they do? They 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 are they gravitate to what they think is the antidote: the bully, the hostile, the belligerence, to puncture that culture of hypocrisy, kind of the Donald Trump effect. But really, those are two extremes that are that are two sides of the same coin. They seem like polar opposites, but they fall into these two excesses. Both actually instrumentalize. Other human beings, they insufficiently appreciate others um, as, as as beings with dignity and worth, and worthy of a bare minimum of respect by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. So again, they seem like polar opposites, but extreme hostility, extreme politeness, actually very similar. And what we need instead is is and this this led me to realize this essential distinction between civility and politeness. And that politeness, you know, focusing on just talking nicer together, focusing on the norms and gestures, that's never the surface level fixes are never going to be enough to help us mm. peacefully coexist and even flourish amid disagreement and, and and difference that that we're all if we just focus on the plainness we're always going to be tempted to to these two extremes but instead we need civility the disposition and to cultivate civility and to celebrate civility in our public life the robust truth telling and, and and spirited dialogue that is also respectful, that those are not mutually exclusive things. That's actually like what a democracy in fact depends on. Um, so what can we do about it? We can seek to embody and also celebrate in our public leaders true civility and not rewarding the the faux kind of pandering of 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 politeness or the bullying and dehumanization of that
0: other extreme of, of hostility. Okay, <clears throat> let's talk about what that looks like in practice i i I love what you just said, and I think it's just it's such a thoughtful way of really encapsulating what is happening at this particular moment mm-hmm. in time. But what do we do? Mm-hmm.
1: It's a great point. I mean, whether you're in the beltway, as I was, um, I felt totally helpless. Or whether you're, you know, at the, fr- not at the fringes of the periphery of American public mm-hmm. life and, and in, in the heartland, um, you know, it's easy to feel helpless, that we're just one person. And like, what can we do in a country of 300 plus million people? Um, and when this problem is both timeless, mm-hmm. as I talk about in my book, not a new problem, not an America problem, not a democracy problem, not a Donald Trump problem. This is a problem of the human condition that we've been grappling with as long as we've been around as a species. So like what can we do when it's intractable and when it's timeless and it feels like we're just one person, what can we do? And, and the, the core message of my book is that we can do way more than we realize. We have way more power to be a part of either the problem – or a part of the solution, then we realize, you know, the subtitle of my book really encapsulates my theory of social change. My book is called The Soul of Civility. Subtitle is Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. And I believe that us choosing to reclaim our power, our civic sphere, and to change ourselves, to heal ourselves, because I think we are, uh, many of us are hurt and broken and have, you know, born the wounds and and suffered um, at the at the hand of just the brokenness in our public discourse, but 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 choosing to to heal ourselves that we can change the world around us too. And I give many examples. Um, you know, hospitality. Uh, I talk about the porching revolution. Uh, I talk about you know just just friendship, reaching across the divide, and inviting, staying curious, inviting someone into dialogue across difference, and and having that sort of open mindedness that is so countercultural in a world right now of of certainty and of tribalism, where being curious mm-hmm. about the other side is seen as betrayal, betrayal. And that's that is anti-democracy, that's anti-human flourishing. So there there there's the, the undercurrent of my book, and I hope that um, those listening will 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 buy it and read it and feel empowered to to because every at the end of every single chapter i have you know 5 to 10 practical ways that this applies to your life now and ways that you can take the ideas of the chapter and and live them out and be an essential tool of social healing in our
0: world right now yeah you're you're reinforcing something that it it resonates so deeply with me because it is in large part about personal responsibility. And we Mm -hmm. we talk a lot on this podcast about this big idea of influence, right? Mm -hmm. And what that means and how you can break that down in the ways that you can create true influence. But it's those personal actions. And Mm -hmm. and that's what you're talking about. It's Mm -hmm. that personal responsibility for taking these particular actions, thinking about those you know, the thoughts you're thinking, the ways that you're interacting with others, the ways that you're inter- in, engaging with them. You talk about in the book, um, and, and you know, no one will be surprised to hear this, um, related to loneliness and isolation being mm-hmm. such a huge societal problem right now. And you talk about civility being an answer to mm-hmm. that problem. Let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about how that works and how you think about that.
1: Well, you're right there it's no secret that we, we have this crisis of of social personal alienation of loneliness and and of um, that is manifesting in, in division and the brokenness that we see playing out in public life, but that comes from like a, a, often a personal personal brokenness, personal alienation. And Hannah Arendt, the the German Jewish philosopher, uh, was really thoughtful on this. In her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, she is looking at the Third Reich. So she was living in Germany, was forced to flee Germany because she was Jewish. And um, she's, she talks about the crisis of alienation uh, in the Third Reich that, that helped lead the way for a strongman, Adolf Hitler, mm-hmm. to, to come to power, that there is a real connection between totalitarianism and alienation. And so that this is a, it, it, this is a threat to our, our democratic institutions. And yet what's interesting is that though this is a core threat to our democracy, our free and flourishing way of life... Our institutions cannot fix alienation. It is a, a local. It's an individual. It is a personal, voluntary, uh, mm. and, and a cumulative act of voluntary acts that that can be a part of the solution. Which is why I didn't write my book to Congress. I wrote my book to everyday Americans as a handbook to social healing, personal and and societal. That you know we can't have a and, and I, so I, and I have a whole chapter, for example, on hospitality, which is a high and noble expression. Of civility, of of reaching across the divide and transforming the outsider to the insider, the stranger and the friend. I I have a whole chapter on civil society and why civility, the the, the little daily acts of of kindness, courtesy, other orientedness, uh, that that supports our our freedom and flourishing. And that's that that's this you know famously this. This this third space, this not this this space between government and the individual that is voluntary and cooperative and sees needs. And, and uh as Tocqueville famously observed in America, you know, when there's a need, we don't just sit around like the French and the English do and wait for the government to come in and act. Tocqueville said, Americans rise up and we take action and we take initiative ourselves. And and that is where the solution to our, our loneliness epidemic will also come as well, with not with any government policy or directive mandating we host dinner parties or have at least five friends, right? Like, that's just absurd. That's the (laughs) stuff of like, you know, tyranny and totalitarianism. Um, But And that's what's so interesting and beautiful and fascinating and I think important about this topic and and why I think my book is important right now is that it's encouraging us that we all have a role to play. And we can't just delegate the authority and hope that someone else is going to fix it. We certainly can't just blame or expect our public leaders to. It starts with us and it starts right now.
0: Yeah. So you come to this notion of understanding and really embodying this idea of hospitality very naturally. You mentioned your your mother a moment ago. I'd love for you to talk about how you grew up and how this idea of hospitality was really ingrained in your upbringing. Yeah, my mother, she's the most
1: other-oriented, gracious, kind person. I've ever known and I think maybe has ever walked the earth. She's just a remarkable human being and not a mean spirited or malicious bone in her body. And our home growing up was just a revolving door of strangers. And so it's funny, and, and so that's <laughs> how I was raised, and that's how, you know, my husband and I like we love having dinner parties, we love hosting. Although it's funny now, my parents are currently um, staying with us and they plan to be, you know, living with us for an extended amount of time each year, which is great because I have two young kids and they love their grandparents. And I I love child care help. Uh, But the funny thing is like, you know, my mom will just be out for a walk and she'll be constantly just bringing home strangers. And like, you know, I meet my neighbors because she just brings people into my home for tea and I'm like, okay, like, welcome. I'm in my pajamas or I'm like about to hop on a podcast, but, you know, welcome. Great to meet you. And, you know, sometimes it's like, mom, have a little bit more discretion. Like, it's not your home. This is my home. You know, it's not your home. But it's so true. Like, it's just, it's an indefatigable will to know and see and love others. Like that's unquashable. Even when I say mom, like, just know people today. Like I'm, I love people, but I also love my alone time, and I, I have like strict boundaries in place to like to protect mm-hmm. my mental health and my you know re- personal habits of renewal and restoration, and resilience. And my mom is just like go 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 he, other humans all the time, and 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 so like but even, you know so she's like that that's just the way she's built like a zealous extrovert, and that was just a part of our the fabric of our home, and it was also a funny di- di- dynamic because my dad is like a zealous introvert. (laughs) And so it was like, you know, in the same way I'm vexed when she's like bringing strangers into my home, my dad's like, come on, like again, like another, another human being. And of course, like he's, he's always down for a good conversation and loves to, you know, enjoy hospitality. Um, So that, that was just a part of our home life growing up. And, you know, my mom, she also speaks. Um, many different languages. And she has this hobby of learning to speak languages, uh, saying hello and common greetings and common sayings and songs in other languages. And so she can greet people in like, you know, 45, 50 languages. Amazing. And in way, it is amazing. And it's like, that's a very practical hospitality. Like we, you know, she she's lived all over the world, but we've, we've spent a lot of our lives. Like I'm from Los Angeles, but raised in Vancouver, Canada. But they're very multicultural um places, right? The world comes here and the world is all around us all the time. And we don't appreciate that. And, and when you're a minority in a culturally dominant society, when someone from the culturally dominant group reaches out and sees and knows and loves you using your native tongue, that's like unbelievable. Let alone when it's a tall, beautiful blonde woman who's like, you know, not just I know your language, but come into my home for dinner sometime, you know, like <laughs> it's unbelievable, like drives me crazy. Sometimes I will be honest with you, but she has just blessed so many other human beings in her life. And, you know, she Got it from my grandmother, who I who I write about in in my book. I call it, I call my grandmother Margaret. I call her the concept that I, you know, coin and unpack in her life is the mellifluous echo of the magnanimous soul, just the power Mm. of one person, one magnanimous soul who's so self-composed that they become utterly self-forgetful when they engage with others in the world and are just totally other-oriented and present with others. That 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 leading your life that way of just presence. And other orientedness, it leaves a a mellifluous echo in your wake, a virtuous cycle that a gift that keeps on giving across time and across place. We all know those stories, the the sort of J.D. Vance hillbilly elegy narratives of one, uh, or you know personally the stories that, that dominate our headlines of drug addiction, of crime, one person's mistake, selfishness that affects dozens of others in their immediate sphere, right? right? And across generations too. Vicious cycles that are put into play when when other people act uh, according to their self-love and according to selfishness. But the inverse is also true. Like We know that people have power to make the world worse and to negatively affect those around them, but the inverse is also true. And people choose to live their lives according to this Logic of other orientedness. There is great power that, in ways that we will never see and are unquantifiable, and we will never appreciate. This sign of eternity to make the world a better, brighter, more connected place. And that was my grandmother, Margaret, my mom's mom. That's my mother, and that's that's what I aspire to be. Although I do so imperfectly, and that's what I aspire to embody. And um, for my kids. As well, mm-hmm. I want I want the, the the spirit of true civility, genuine love, wanting to know, see, um, and be present with others. I want that to pervade our home life, life and be an example to them. Like that's another um, way in which we can each be part of the solution. We we insufficiently appreciate the way our lives are testaments to these ideas, especially to the young ones. Even if we're not actively parents, there are always people watching us, always young people looking up mm-hmm. to us, whether we want to or not. And that's a powerful instructor, a powerful teacher, probably the most powerful one, in fact.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really that's a really beautiful thing. I am I'm thinking as you were saying that I was thinking about and, and you mentioned this um, the the self love or the or the self focus aspects of actions and there's so much emphasis on self care and mm-hmm. all of these things which are not bad things to be clear, right? Mm Self-care is not a terrible Mm -hmm. thing. And Mm -hmm. setting boundaries to say, just as you said, that your mother's an extrovert and you maybe are a borderline introvert. And that's perfectly okay. And you do have to set some boundaries so that you can perform at your highest and most optimal best. Let's break down, though, a bit more where (laughs) self-care becomes sort of run amok, if Mm -hmm. you will. And if you're raising children and especially girls that are teens, are tweens, and social media is a present topic, I know you're not a big fan. I am, but but also recognize that we have to manage that. But self-care, especially for girls and women, is just completely chock full of all of this sort of Almost borderline obsessive self-care. So I realize that's not much of a, a, a succinct question at all, but I'm kind of laying the topic out there. I'd love for you to help me break this down and make sense of it in this context of civility.
1: Right, it's a great, a great thought, a great insight because, you know, the um, the cult of authenticity and you know put yourself first. It's very much the message of the world right now, and so I, right. I contextualize that uh, in my book um, that the the core human tension in our nature is between our sociability and our self-love, that we are profoundly social as a species. We become fully human in relationship with others. Uh, And yet morally and biologically, we're driven to meet our own needs before others. And those two facets of who we are our intention and the process of civility is the habituation the education the conditioning and the practice of of sur- learning when to surrender the self for the sake of the social so that we can become fully human and and cooperate and thrive and flourish as individuals and as a species but that's the core human tension in the human condition love of others love of self and that is why this challenge has always been a problem again why it's not a democracy problem not a now problem 2024 problem it's not a america problem this is a, a, a problem that we've been grappling with as long as we've been around and that is why i draw from you know m- medieval texts ancient greek text egyptian text middle eastern texts like in ancient sanskrit and indian texts t- that all grapple with this tension in our nature and and come to remarkably similar mandates and solutions, which is restraining the self so that we can become fully happy. And I think that's where the cult of, you know, self-help um, and just authenticity today can be dangerous is, is that when we single-mindedly pursue ourselves above all else and fail to see ourselves in the context of others. And even just, you know, saying having discipline, saying no to ourselves, restraining ourselves right. – um, that we, we, we miss out on, on core um, joys and core happinesses in life that actually being enslaved to our desires is and being dominated by what we want and our happiness, that is almost a certain path to unhappiness. You know, it, it, it's kind of an irony, right? Like focusing only on ourselves and our happiness leads to uh, invariably... Unhappiness right and that, and that I think also affirms like this this vision of human nature that, that I put forth in the book that we need others and we need to sacrifice ourselves, say no to ourselves, to actually be free and to actually be you know responsible citizens, and to be actually personally happy and we insufficiently often appreciate that how how meaningful it is and how joy filled we become when we do give when we do sacrifice i mean there's all this research on parenting how you know p- parents you know might not be happy in the short term but they they live more meaningful lives right this great literature on the difference between happiness and and meaning and joy so i think i think it's an excellent uh, topic that's so relevant especially in this age of of social media
0: yeah. Lexi, this book is incredibly well researched. It is chock full of references going all the way back to the Dark Ages and sort of when the first writings about civility and politeness. Talk about the process that you went through to write this book. This was not something that you did in three months and sent it off to publishers. This was a much longer term endeavor.
1: That's right. I've been thinking about these ideas my entire life, probably because of the way that I was raised. Just my mother asking us to, you know, set the table just so, and we had all these, you know, expectations that surrounded us. To, uh, and I, I, always kind of questioned them. This won't surprise you, Laura, that I, you know, hate rules. I hate being told what to do. I'm constitutionally <laughs> allergic to authority. And so, you know, my mother would tell me what to do, and I, I want to know why. You know, what's the underlying philosophical reasoning? And I never quite got those answers to to my questions of, you know, why we do things the way we do them. Is it just because some self-appointed authority, some self-appointed etiquette expert said that we should? And is that the best way that we should do it? Is it the only way? Probably not. And so, you know, I always hungered for that, that why. And so these questions persisted. And and I also, it was – so to some extent, my entire life, I've been working on this book and, and thinking about these ideas, but then it was it was the catalyst, the immediate impetus for the book. for the book was um, being in government, being in this mm-hmm. environment of anti-human flourishing that caused me to zoom out and think about these big questions again, like what does it mean to be human? And what is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owed to others by virtue of our shared humanity? And what does that look like in practice, even in our deeply... Divided time that we find ourselves in now, when the stakes feel existential, they feel really high. What then? Mm. What do we owe others, and what are we owed as well? And what are the implications for our democracy and our freedom right. and our flourishing? And that was kind of the moral philosophical foundation, that the core quest- set of questions that I was thinking about as I as I was writing this book that I you know started writing over five years ago now, but had been again been thinking about um, and 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 writing about in essays forms way way before then. Um, and, um, and then I, I zoomed out and looked at other cultures and, and, and wanted to incorporate, you know, if I wanted this book to be representative of not just the American condition, but the human condition, then what, what can we, what can we learn? And we can learn a lot because thoughtful people have been grappling with this question independently across time and place. And they have independently said, you know, happiness and the good life and human flourishing is found. And restraint of the self, you know, not single mindedly pursuing our self satisfaction. Um, that we have to consider others alongside of our own. That is the stuff of the good life, and that's also the stuff of civility, as I define it and explore it throughout uh, the book. And there's, I think, there's a, a certain like warmth, and in and, 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 and that there is this continuity. Like we can just be, you know, we're, we're connected to those that have come before us, both in the Western context, but and, and it does kind of in other contexts as well, and that kind of confirms our common humanity in a really beautiful and unique way that we're not alone in grappling with this. Because I, you know, I think that part of the challenge is that it feels so intractable when we do feel alone. But it's like there's a lot of lot that we can learn from those that have come before us. And that's very much the ethos that pervades the book.
0: Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. I'm curious, though, um, because you had been thinking about this topic and these series of topics for so many years, you probably went in to this exercise with some pretty firmly held beliefs. And I'm curious as to whether. Your mindset changed as you really delved into doing the work of putting the book together. Oh,
1: I love that question. Like, where did I change my mind? Or, uh, or did you, right? Maybe yeah. you didn't. Maybe. Well, I think one thing that I found really beautiful and fascinating is that, you know, insights and truths that I had held and I'd been raised with in my kind of Judeo-Christian Western context, that they were reinforced by other ethical and philosophical and religious traditions as well. That, mm. um, you know, j- just this note that there's, a, there, like, for example, Confucius, Muhammad, and Jesus Christ, they all, um, they all. Paint this picture of human nature uh, as as inherently fallen and selfish, and that that the good life is found in overcoming that selfishness and and flourishing with others. And there are, are precepts and mandates and maxims and all of those traditions that are about rising above our self. And I think that's really interesting and and beautiful. That you know I'm a Christian, but that people have come to truths that I accept. Independently of revelation, independently of reading, you know the the Judeo Christian scriptures that I hold to be divinely inspired. I think that's really interesting and beautiful, and I don't feel like I'm compromising my philosophical, religious, ethical precepts at all by saying that's fascinating that other people have observed the human condition and come to independently ideas about how to do this thing called life together. I think that's mm. beautiful and fascinating. And I think that's especially interesting and relevant in our own context where religious authority doesn't really matter, you know, that that we we pride ourselves on being in a, a, you know, a secular nation, right? Separation of church and state, even though that's not, you know, constitutional. It's like, you know, an offhanded remark from in Jefferson in a, in a letter to a friend, right? But it's like, right. you know, we, we take that idea that's really part of our ethos that, you know, scripture and religion doesn't have authority, this modern Western liberal democratic Context, and so I think it is interesting that we can draw from these other traditions to enhance that. You no, know, there are truths that are conducive to the life well-lived and to um, to human flourishing and to a democracy um, that 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 were not that are not just exclusively grounded in religious argument. I think that's really helpful to to to, to, to my book, and I I wanted my book not just to be you know for fellow Christians. Uh, I wanted it to not just be for you know I'm a classical liberal conservative. I wanted it not just to be for my own that, that own, that own, you know, aspect of who I am, I, I wrote the book intentionally and I hope that it continues to be this tool of, of conversation across difference and of reminding us that we have far more in common as members of the human community than that which differentiates us and that's so easy to forget and that's so obscured um, in our world today where we're, we're, we're just constantly reminded of what differentiates us from others and why the other is to be feared and shunned and avoided. And that is so harmful for, again, human flourishing,
0: but especially a harmonious and functioning democracy. Yeah i love that um let's talk uh, for a moment i know you're spending a lot of time promoting the book you've got you've received incredible reviews and there's been a lot of interest in it i think the fact that it is an election year it is a contentious one um, i think also will give the book you know a lot of opportunity to really hopefully speak to people mm-hmm. and, and have mm-hmm. people consider maybe behaviors and just mindsets mm-hmm. in perhaps a different way than they might otherwise. At least we can be hopeful related to that. But talk to us uh, for a moment, Lexi, about other things that you're working on. I know you have the Renaissance newsletter. Maybe talk about what that is. So Civic Renaissance is my newsletter and publication, an intellectual community
1: dedicated to beauty goodness and truth and reviving the wisdom of the past to help us lead better lives today. So I encourage anyone listening to, to join us over there and, and get a, uh, a free mini course called Greek Mythology in 10 Minutes. If you sign up for a Civic Renaissance, it'll get automatically delivered to your inbox. A crash course in kind of the, the stories that form the basis of what I call the great conversation, the iterative dialogue across uh, history and culture uh, um, amongst thoughtful people about questions of origin, purpose, and destiny in, 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 the, in human in life. And so my next book um, is on uh, autodidactism or lifelong learning. And it's about <laughs> why you don't need to go to school or even be in a classroom To get an education or to lead a robust life of the mind. And I hope it's kind of a a calling card for people that are just kind of disillusioned with education or people who love learning, but education time in the classroom kind of took that away from them. That's for students and for teachers. I know so many teachers who left the profession because they're like, I just couldn't handle the red tape anymore. You know, like my admin my principal, my administrator took the joy out of it. And that's such a that breaks my heart, you know, that people often go into education because I love learning. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm someone that and then that often gets crushed both from students, for, for students and for teachers. And I'm someone who had the privilege of being raised in a home of, you know, intellectually curious people. My parents are both lifelong learners. They're very, you know, credentialed. They've gone to many institutions of higher education and have multiple graduate degrees, both of them. But they know that learning is a way of life and and mm-hmm. it's a lifestyle of wonder and engaging others with a sense of awe and curiosity that I think, you know, ties into the themes of this current book, of my current book about, you know, my curiosity, just, just you know, not just saying you think a certain thing, therefore I know all there is to know about you, but approaching others with with kind of a wonder and interest, like why do you think uh, the way that you do, like that, that you know, both go, can go a long way to healing our deep divides, but it's also the stuff... Of a life well lived, like there is no, no. Uh, if you're a curious person, you will never be bored, because you know that yep. every single experience and every single person has something to teach you. So it's like a little bit of self help, and it's like kind of orthogonal but related to all the literature being published about higher education right now. And like, what is it? What should it be? It's so expensive. Are kids even learning anything? And I'm like, well, you know, I have a little bit of an answer. Like, actually, there, are, you know, some of the best, most important aspects of education, you don't actually need to get in a four year. For your degree, you know, that you can just pick up a great book and start right now. And that's really when your education begins. It's like when finally your schooling <laughs> ends, you know.
0: So uh yeah,
1: yeah, the lifelong learning is the next next book.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, an open invitation to come back and thank talk to you. us about that. I absolutely love that. I have loved this conversation. Alexandra Hudson, also known as Lexi, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Such a privilege, Laura. Thank you for having me. Okay, friend, what did you think? Lots to unpack here. Since recording this episode, I actually had some time to reflect. And I find that so much of what Lexi and I discussed really made me think. I'd love to hear your reactions to this and how you think about civility and the role of hospitality and all the things that Lexi and I discussed. How do you think about all of this in your own life? I would really, really love to hear. For now, though, be sure to check out the show notes where you can order a copy of Lexi's terrific book. Again, it's called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. And you can also learn more about Lexi's work with Civic Renaissance. Take care, friend. And thank you again for being part of She Said, She Said podcast and She Said, She Said Media, which produces this podcast each week.